John 6 verse 1 says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he had performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And then Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming toward him. And he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered and said, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, and the number was about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to his disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. And then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And Father, we ask now that by your spirit's ministry, prepare each one of us, Lord, give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular section of your word as we study it. We thank you that it's all profitable. It's all inspired, Lord. So this morning, teach us, strengthen us, Lord, correct us and counsel us. Give us assurance and confirmation. Let us hear a word in season that we need to hear, Lord. Help us to want to hear the voice of God and to have an expectancy in our hearts that you have something to say to us personally this morning. Bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's important to remember that no matter how the situation currently looks, that Jesus is never limited. I know sometimes we look at situations from a human perspective, or there's certainly the comments of those who look upon the current circumstances, but it's important to remember that Jesus himself, no matter how it looks, is never, ever limited. Remember that Jesus can do a lot with a very little. This story illustrates that. In fact, even more, Jesus actually can do anything with absolutely nothing. That's how everything came into creation. God spoke into existence something out of absolutely nothing. And the reality is, however, Jesus, because of the way he works, we also see in our story, often allows there to be some small measure of human involvement in his works when he accomplishes them. And we'll see some of those things as we look at this passage together this morning. This particular miracle of Jesus that we're looking at, we often call it the feeding of the 5,000, is one of the unique miracles of Jesus in this sense. It's the only miracle that the Holy Spirit causes to be recorded in all four gospel accounts. Uh, It shows up here in John chapter 6. 
It also takes place, if you're a note taker, in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and Luke 9. And each one of the different gospel writers writing from their particular vantage point, if you would. Again, that's the idea is different gospel writers record the events, the teachings, the miracles of Jesus. They write from their vantage point, like different people who all witness maybe the, the same event. And they write from their vantage point giving particular maybe details and, and, and sort of as the writers of the Gospels write, remember they had a particular audience in mind, a particular purpose in mind. So therefore they give unique details maybe that may not be included in the other records, which is wonderful because then with the four Gospel writers, they give us additional or fuller details of each story. And this particular story is recorded in all four Gospels, which gives us a, an even greater and fuller picture. So because of that, we'll try and share with you some of the other details from the other accounts and gives the fuller picture. Look with me back again in the first verse as we get sort of the setting here. It says, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, often called as well the Sea of Tiberias because of a particular town there. And a great multitude, verse two, it says, followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples and John tells us the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. So these first few verses give us sort of the setting, if you would, to kind of envision the backdrop and the picture of what's happening. It helps to know chronologically that between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, almost about a year's time chronologically has passed in Jesus' public ministry. Uh, so that's important to help. And verse four tells us there, the last verse we read, that the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was again near. Now that was an annual feast and that marks for us, John does a timeline showing that many months have now elapsed since only chapter two, the end of chapter two in John's gospel, which kind of allows us to see that John sort of skips over a particular season of Jesus' public ministry. And he doesn't record a lot of the events, the teachings and the miracles that happened during this year gap that he somewhat leaves out in his particular record because John really wants to focus on specific things in his writing, predominantly the latter portion of Jesus' life and ministry and, and the last hours, if you would. That's why John chapter uh, 13 through 17 gives to us what we call the upper room discourse. These great chapters that took place of things Jesus said that the other gospel accounts don't particularly give to us. But during this gap of about a, almost a year's time that John doesn't record, the other three gospels fill in the details of what was happening. It's just important to know that during that time, many healings, many miracles of Jesus were performed during those uh, months that have transpired. And therefore, great multitudes are now following Jesus in the popularity of his public ministry you notice with me there in verse one it says that jesus now at this point it says goes over with his disciples he crosses the sea of galilee uh, also called as well the sea of tiberius um, the sea of galilee located in northern israel if you ever look at a map was really a lot more like we read the word sea a lot more like a lake if you would in our mindset as we would envision something it's only a few miles wide in fact you can actually stand on one shore and visually see across to the other shoreline that's there so they now travel over to the northeastern side of the sea of galilee the other gospel accounts tell us that jesus was taking his disciples there for a brief time of rest 
because of the very busy ministry that had been taking place. However, look what verse 2 says. They're going for a little R&R. And isn't this just what you like? A great multitude follows along because they saw, why? The signs that Jesus had performed on those who were diseased. So because the popularity of his ministry is growing at this stage, due to the fact that he's been doing many miracles that people realize now Jesus has the power to heal sickness and disease and those who are blind and lame. That brought a great multitude of people out of the woodwork, if you would. And all of a sudden now people are flocking to Jesus, of course, for various reasons and motives. But people could see, because of how the Sea of Galilee is not too wide, they could see where the boats were traveling. So they recognize Jesus has now gotten into a boat with his disciples and he's headed over there. And because of that, they now follow. It says a great multitude follow him over to the location where he's traveling. Verse three says that as they arrived, Jesus went up the mountain and then sat there with his disciples. So seeing the crowds have followed, knowing they're there with many needs Jesus, we're told now, sort of ascends up to a little higher elevation. Again, it says a mountain. Don't envision your mind like a mountain range, like the Rocky Mountains in Israel there. These are more like hills, as we were talking. them. And the Sea of Galilee is surrounded with hills. It kind of raised above to look down on the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus goes up to this vantage point, no doubt, where he can see the crowds starting to assemble again, seeking for his help. And the other accounts tell us this, that when Jesus saw the multitudes coming, he was moved with compassion for them and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, teaching them many things and healing those who had need of healing. So Jesus sees this unwelcomed multitude as an opportunity for ministry. His disciples, much like you and I, are going to kind of see it a different way. And let me read to you what Mark's gospel tells us in Mark 6. It says, when the day was now far spent, so the first day of vacation has been nothing but work. And you can imagine how the disciples are feeling about that. He's teaching everybody and helping and ministering to people. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, Lord, this is a deserted place. The hour is already late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. But Jesus answered and said to them, here's a key insight, you give them something to eat. So the disciples say, Lord, we've been at this all day. This is a remote area. The people need to eat. You need to dismiss the crowd so they can go and into the areas and villages around them and buy food and provisions for their family uh, so that they don't faint and be here tomorrow. Uh, send them away. And Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. He now issues, if you would, this quite honestly, very unrealistic from a logical perspective command to them. Again, remember, as we just read there in verse 10, it says the number of men alone was about 5,000 people. That's just the men. Add into that women and children. This could be a crowd of up to 10 to 15,000 people. And Jesus now said, how about you feed them? How about you supply for them in this deserted area here what they need for food or for dinner? And it's at this point, verse 5 continues with our account after Jesus has just said that, saying, Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing the multitude coming toward him, and said to Philip, 
where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, we know that Philip, particularly of the disciples, was from this kind of area that they're at now geographically. Bethsaida is the area he was from. And because of that, that could be why that Jesus of the 12 there turns particularly to Philip and poses this question to him. Maybe he's just being logical, thinking Philip would, again, kind of know the local area and where the sources were. But nonetheless, the question of Jesus here must have still been rather shocking to all of the disciples to hear. Where shall we go and buy bread that these may eat? You have to wonder if the disciples were not thinking, is he really serious about this? Did he really just ask what I think he did? Where are we going to go and buy enough bread for these people to eat? It seemed like an impossible situation to resolve, but the circumstance, here's the key, was a setup. This was a setup by Jesus. The Bible even tells us that for him to further train and educate his disciples to reveal more about himself and to teach them how to do his work, how he ministers and how he operates. Notice verse 6 tells us that specifically. The Holy Spirit indicates that. It says, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So notice the question of Jesus, and keep this in mind when he asks questions to you sometimes, he wasn't really looking for more information. He asked this rather challenging question because it's intended for spiritual education. It's a question intended for their development. It says right there, the Holy Spirit tells us Jesus knew what he intended to do in that situation. In other words, as he says this and as he asks this, he already has in mind the powerful miracle that he's going to perform to bring the solution that they need to the problem they were facing. And I don't know about you, but isn't it really encouraging and somewhat comforting to know that even when we don't know what the Lord's doing, and even at times when maybe we're unsure what's going to happen or how to solve a problem, that the Lord always knows what he's doing? He always knows what he intends to do and to realize that he already always has a plan in mind that Jesus is never baffled. He's never stumped by the situation that you find yourself in currently. And as we feel perplexed or you're feeling concerned or maybe even sometimes a bit out of your comfort zone by something that you're now confronted with, that Jesus already has a plan in mind for what's going on in our lives that he already knows how he's going to work and how he's going to address the situation. And thankfully, he's not alarmed. You know, we get alarmed by our situations or we get upset or concerned about our circumstances, especially if it looks seemingly like an impossibility. But the reason is, is we fail to remember that Jesus is in control. We fail to remember that the reason Jesus is never baffled or alarmed is because he has the power to handle anything and to resolve any problem to bring a solution to any circumstance. Sometimes I think Jesus must even just allow us to come to see how absolutely impossible humanly it really is in order to set the backdrop, if you would, in the midst of our complete inability and personal lack of resources. It's from that backdrop he can then perform his work in such a way where we realize it was all him. And we see his power and we learn things about him and we allow him to begin to show us what he can do. And we see, wow, 
The Lord had a plan in mind the whole time. Look at that. He actually had a plan in mind, even when we didn't see. Perhaps this morning you're confronted maybe with a challenging circumstance like the disciples here. Maybe the Lord asked you to do something that seems, quite frankly to you, impossible. And yet he's asked you to do it anyway. And perhaps this morning you're thinking, how in the world? How in the world am I going to be able to? You fill in the blank. Or where in the world am I possibly going to be able to? You fill in the blank. When the reality is, the good news is, Jesus knows what he intends to do already in that situation. He has a plan in mind. And he intends on operating his plan and his power. Perhaps right now you're facing something. And like the disciples in this story, you have absolutely no idea what the Lord's doing. And you're thinking, why in the Lord, why in the world is the Lord doing this? Lord, what in the world are you doing? What is going on? How would you how could you ask us to go through this? How could you ask me to to in some way do such a thing? Why are you leading in this way? Again, can I say be at rest? Because Jesus has a plan in mind. And he knows what he is doing. And even if you can't see it yet, I assure you, Jesus has a plan in mind. And he has the power to perform that plan. We need to learn to trust the lordship of Jesus and walk by what? Faith and not by sight. It's a faith lesson. And in the same way, the only way you get stronger in exercise is if you periodically put in the additional rep even when you're tired. And, and, and maybe if you have somebody helping, you say, come on, give me one more rep, one more rep. No, that, that was comfortable. No, give me one more And it's by that exercise that you push yourself to the next level. Listen, sometimes Jesus says in faith, give me one more rep. Oh, Lord, come on. You've stretched my faith enough. How about one more rep? How about one more rep in faith? But that's where faith is developed and we see things and we learn things about the Lord and we grow spiritually. Jesus would never lead us astray. He's a good shepherd Even when we don't see it, trust me, we can always know that he has a plan in mind because he did the same with the disciples and he has not changed. In fact, verse 6 tells us that sometimes the Lord may be allowing things to unfold in a certain way to put us into a situation. What's verse 6 say? Actually, where it's a spiritual test. To let it be revealed, how will we handle a situation to see if we're going to trust him? Though Jesus knew what he was going to do, he still takes the disciples through this process where he says, you give them something to eat. And then he poses this question to Philip, where can we get bread? But it says there that he said that specifically to test them. He wanted to see how they'd handle the situation. He wanted to see uh, the command he gave them. What would they do with it in response? Where would they turn? Were they going to trust him? Or are they going to rely on their own human ingenuity and and their own efforts and and think they have to come up with a fleshly solution, which we see they try and do in their logical human effort? And the Lord's discipleship training, I tell you this, for disciples today, it has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the discipleship training of Jesus is still the same. And perhaps in your current circumstances, the Lord has now allowed a situation in connection with that And that specific situation is actually a spiritual test for you. Maybe it's something in the midst of those circumstances that the Lord has now allowed it to take the turn he has or come to the place it has because it's a spiritual test and he's given you a challenge or maybe a decision to make to see how are you going to handle it. 
Are you going to glorify the Lord in it? Or are you going to get bitter and run away from God in anger? Are you going to trust the Lord and wait upon Him and give Him a chance to work? Or are you going to start to take control and put your hands on and manipulate it to make it happen the way that you want it to happen? What are we going to do? And sometimes the Lord puts us into situations to allow us to be tested to see how we'll respond. Will we trust Him? Will we rely on Him? Where are we going to turn? Remember, in any other area of training or development, it's important to be periodically tested to know really where you're at. Again, whether it's exercise or education or, or something that you're... Any other area of life, there's important periodically to experience some form of testing to know where you're at in your development. Has there been progress? Has there been growth? Uh, to what level have you attained to? It's honest evaluation. Do you handle things as you ought to and the way you were trained to? Or are you going to switch and go in a different direction? And, and these are important times of testing. Even spiritually, we at times are tested by the Lord. First Peter 1 and James 1 tells us, however, that it is when we fall into various trials... It says that when we fall into trials, we can know that our faith is being tested by the fire. And the wonderful thing is this. The good news is, is that when we're tested, it reveals things to us. It reveals the genuineness of our faith. Where is it really at? It allows us to see things about ourselves spiritually. And ultimately as well, it produces something more valuable as our faith is refined and it becomes more sincere and, and allows us to grow and to mature and to develop. So Jesus is offering a test as he's about to perform this miracle. But he gives the test first in verse 5. Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? He's saying this to test them. However, Philip answers, not knowing that, of course, saying, Well, Lord, a 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that everyone may have even noticed just a little. So Philip does his best. What does he do? He takes a nice responsible survey. Maybe he sends out the 12 and, and kind of, you know, maybe he recruits Matthew, the tax collector. He was the accountant, the numbers guy. And he says, but Matthew, help me out here. Look at this crowd. What, what do you think? I mean, give me a rough estimation. You're the numbers guy. About how many people do you think are here? And then he's, again, he's, he's calculating, figuring and reasoning about how much bread then would be needed for each person to at least have a little bit so they don't faint. And he even, no doubt, takes in mind, anybody check the, the stocks recently? What's the current rate of bread? So the current rate of bread and about that many people and about a nuts, so much. And then he throws out, it seems this kind of, estimated number there verse 7 of about 200 denarii worth of bread now 200 denarii is about seven to eight months of wages in that day so that's a sufficient amount of money seven to eight months of salary of a common worker worth of bread that's a pretty substantial amount of money but notice then he has a reality check and he realizes even spending that much money if they had it in their treasury or even if they somehow could come up with that money and go out and buy that much bread, even that would not be enough. Still, it would fall way short to be able to even give each person a little. So the reality here is the large size of the need and their lack of resources, it keeps growing and growing. And they're coming into a greater awareness, this is even a bigger thing than we thought. This is even beyond our ability to handle 
further than we imagine. But sometimes, again, that's kind of part of the Lord's process is he allows us to see the reality of the need or maybe our lack of ability to a greater and greater degree. I do have to say this. You got to give Philip a gold star for trying to be responsible. You know, I mean, even though he may not have, you know, hit the mark, I mean, you got to give him a gold star. He's trying to be responsible. He's trying to show stewardship. His error is that he doesn't think to humbly say, independent faith, Lord, uh, we simply don't have on hand what we need. And we couldn't come up with it even if we tried. But Lord, we have come to see over this last year, you can do miracles. Oh, Philip, you forgot that part, remember? Jesus has been doing miracles. We forget that sometimes, don't we? The Lord's done miracles, I assure you, probably in each and every one of your lives in this room. And yet then the next situation comes, you go, oh gosh, this is the Titanic, we're sinking this time. And sometimes we forget, wait a minute. Didn't the Lord do pretty powerful things before? Isn't there occasions in our life where we can look back and say, man, that looked impossible. And then the power of God came into that situation and we rejoiced and we celebrated, but it's like divine amnesia. We forget about it. And here, Philip could have remembered, Lord, we can't supply what is needed. We'll never be able to do it. But please, Lord, help us by your power. Lord Jesus, show us what to do in this situation. Well, after Philip's explanation about the absolute deficiency of the resources, again, Mark's account of this tells us that Jesus then asked this next question. That Jesus then said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Now, basically, Jesus says, so, okay, you don't have enough, but but what do you have to work with? What do you have on hand? I think sometimes the Lord asks us that very same question. Sometimes he says to us, look, I don't know. I know that you don't have everything that you need. And I know that you don't have enough. But what do you have? What do you have? What do you have available? Because the reality is he doesn't disvalue or disregard what we can attribute. He actually many times says, look, I'll include that in the process. And we see the Lord doing that here. Verse 8, the dialogue goes on. Notice, one of the disciples, now Andrew, Simon's brother, says to him, There is a lad here, a young boy, who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? So Andrew, as we often see in the account, seems to be a people person. We always find him bringing people to Jesus. Now he's bringing a small child to Jesus, particularly because he went out when he heard Jesus say, how many loaves do you have? Go see. And he finds a young lad, a young boy with a packed lunch. He brings him back to Jesus. Verse 9 there says that he puts him before the Lord and says, oh, here's a young lad. He, he has five barley loaves and, and two small fish. He's got his lunchbox with him. And now it says here, five barley loaves and two small fish. Again, the barley loaves, don't picture in your mind, nice big Italian uh, you know, bread loaves here. These were little pita breads. And it says specifically there, five small, or excuse me, two small fish. The idea is picture something in your mind, like what we call like a minnow or a sardine or something. So what this little boy has is a couple pieces of pita bread and, and a few small fish to make a little sandwich. Now, I don't know, but my mind sometimes wanders because these are real stories and real illustrations. Here's what I picture happening. Jesus comes into the area. At this point, crowds are following the Lord everywhere he goes. 
He's the exciting thing in that day. There's not television. There's not great movies. There's not all these other things to do. There's no iPhones to play with. So what happens? All of a sudden, thousands of people are moving through an area again because that man, Jesus, the miracle of God worker, is in our area. And I picture this lad, this young boy, hearing Jesus is in the area, seeing the crowds again, and he's saying, Mommy, Mommy, I want to go. The crowds, they're, the, they're going over there. He might do another one of those miracles. And she says, Now, Simeon, did you brush your teeth? Yeah, I brushed my teeth, Mom. Did you clean behind your teeth? Yeah, I just clean behind my ears, Mom. Please, can I go? Can I go? Wait a minute, because maybe there's a big... Let me put together a little lunch for you. A few pieces of pita, two small fish, Put these in your satchel there. Be home before dark. And she sends him out to go run with the crowds. Now, imagine, little did that faithful mommy know. That performing that little faithful work of being a mother. And the undervalued ministry of being a mom. That that little thing she did to care for her kids and to pack lunch would be something that the Lord would take and use in a great way for his purposes and for his work. Imagine as she is just lovingly packing a lunch for her son, being a good and faithful mom above all else, that that would be something that Jesus would use in an incredibly great way, and she had absolutely no idea. No idea. Listen, I think the lesson here becomes never underestimate the value of seemingly small things that Jesus can use in really great ways. The smallest of things, anything, even the unlikely things can often become a part of Jesus' plan. Realize things like just being a good mom, just being a faithful mother and caring for children well may contribute to far greater work than perhaps we ever envisioned, which in turn could impact thousands of people thousands of people were impacted and that contributed to what the lord did that day i think of timothy in the gospels in the new testament timothy was a godly man and it says that he was a godly man because he was raised by a godly mother who invested into his life and little did that mother know she raised a godly son and launched him out into the world that that son would bless thousands of people in jesus name and what a beautiful thing to consider here. Perhaps I have to wonder, maybe the greatest miracle in this whole story is a growing hungry young boy was actually willing to share his lunch. That's pretty miraculous. Maybe it was his good upbringing that gave him the heart to do that. His unselfish attitude certainly to give up his lunch there became another part of cooperating with Jesus' ministry in this powerful miracle coming to pass to solve a problem. So as Philip presents the young boy with, with what he has to offer, here's five loaves and two small fish. Notice, again, he kind of has a reality check too because he says, uh, but what is this among so many? So here's a lunch, but then right away he has the reality check and thinks that was probably really a dumb idea. <laughs> What's everybody thinking of me after posing that? So he says, uh, never mind that suggestion. I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, what could possibly be done with such a small thing? Little did he know that again, as I said at the beginning, Jesus can do a lot with a very little when you put it into his hands. And Philip's suggestion was not that bad of a suggestion. Look, verse 10 continues by telling us, then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. 
And again, it was springtime, so there was much grass in that place, and the men sat down in number about 5,000. So at this point, Jesus is demonstrating that when he does ministry, notice, and does his works, he does two things. He involves disciples and followers in his works, and he also does things, I like to see this, in a very orderly way. The disciples realize what they can't do, and that they can't do very much, they've come to realize, I like to see here in our story that Jesus still asked them to do at least the simple things that they are able to do. Look what he says to them there in our verse. He says, make the people sit down. Go make the people sit down. And Luke adds in his account that the people sat down in groups of 50. So what's happening here is this nice orderly sized groups are being assembled as Jesus is about to provide food for them so that the food can be distributed in an organized and an efficient way as he starts to work. I think we learn two lessons from what's taking place here about when Jesus does ministry and Jesus works by his power. First of all, Jesus always involves his disciples. He involves his followers. He wants to include people like you and I in some capacity, however simple it may be. Again, what are the disciples focused on like us? They're focused on what they can't do. But the question becomes, but what can you do? Jesus turns to them. They're focused on all how they can't fix it. They can't solve it. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, could you go ask some people to sit down? Could you do that? Could you, could you handle that? Could you go out there and, 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 and get people to sit down in organized groups? And, and they, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, we, yeah, we can do that. Hey, you over there. Yeah, I did that. Look, yeah. Try it again. Oh, hey, you over there. About 50 or so. Oh, and, hey, look at that. You're doing something. You're helping in my work. You're contributing to my processes. Look, this morning, a lot of times, Christians focus on what they can't do. Oh, I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I don't have time for this. What can you do? What can you do? Can you do something simple? Do something simple. There are lots of simple things that need to be done. And here Jesus says, look, I want to include you in the work. Find something, something simple that you can do. It may be practical. It doesn't mean it's not spiritual. So Jesus likes to involve us in his work. But notice also that when the Lord works, and it's beautiful to see as he's making people sit down in groups of 50 here, that when the Lord works and does ministry, he always does it in an orderly way. We serve a God of order. And I think this is beautiful to see. Jesus takes this crowd of 15 or so thousand people and he efficiently organizes them into manageable groups and he establishes order as the structure within which he will then do his work. And he blesses order. He blesses some form of structure. 1 Corinthians 14, which is a chapter about the ministry of the Spirit of God and how God's Spirit works collectively among the congregation and assemblies of worship. And it says in that chapter about the Spirit of God's work that it should happen decently and in order. The idea is harmoniously and in a way that it's not out of order. I think that's important to remember because sometimes people equate the Spirit of God moving with erratic things happening. When the Bible teaches us that the Spirit of the Lord does not bring an absence of order. The Spirit of God, when He works, works harmoniously and beautifully. The Spirit of God does not work in such a way that causes disorderly conduct to happen. When I see disorderly conduct happen in the name of the Spirit, it causes me to question, 
not quenching the spirit, but do we need to quench the human spirit? Because the disorderliness just took away attention from what the Spirit of God was trying to do. So the Spirit of God never causes disorder, disruption. And whenever we do ministry work for Jesus, that's what he's doing here, ministry with his disciples. I think when we do ministry work and Jesus is leading, it should be done in an orderly way. Organization is not unspiritual. Certainly we can overstructure and organize things and quench this, but, but organization and order and working efficiently is something that Jesus works within those boundaries. It's good stewardship, as we'll see. The other Gospels tell us regarding that five loaves and small fish that at this point in our story that Jesus then said this, he said, bring them here to me. They have the five loaves, the two fish. They make the people sit down. And then Jesus says, okay, bring those five loaves and those two fish. Bring them here to me. In other words, Jesus is saying, bring what you have to me and put it into my hands. And again, I have to say, I believe often that is how the Lord works, that he says to you and I at times, I know it may not be much, but bring me what you do have. Bring it to me. Put what you have, don't focus on how little it is, put what you have into my hands and let me work with it. Because if you put what little you have into my hands, I'll bless it and I can multiply it and expand it. But as long as you keep it in your hands, there's no power to do anything in your hands. But put what you have into my hands, surrender it over to me. Lord, I don't have much, but what I do have here it is. Whether it's your financial resources, whether it's your talents, whatever, Lord, just I, I, I put it into your hands. Because the reality is, is if you put it into the Lord's hands, he can then bless and begin to multiply and stretch and expand it beyond ways we could imagine. Look what happens, verse 11. You see that truth come to pass. It says, Jesus took the loaves, verse 11, and when he had given thanks, he blessed the food. He distributed them to the disciples, the disciples to those sitting down, likewise the fish, as much as they wanted. In the beginning of verse 12 says they were all filled. So as they put what they had, notice, into the hands of the Lord, what does he do? He performs a miracle. A miracle of multiplication. I, I can't help but to wonder, I mean, how was that working? Was it literally just multiplying in his hands? Would they go away and it looked like he had nothing left? And when they came back, then there was, there was more there again. But Jesus now begins to do one of his miracles. He's expanding these small resources beyond their imagination. And notice in verse 11 with me how during Jesus' work, Jesus was the source. Jesus is the supply. And the disciples are what? They're just distributors. They're just glorified delivery boys, if you would. It says that Jesus is doing the miracle. He's distributing to the disciples. And then the disciples are distributing the food to those who are present. Jesus produced. They just distributed what he gave to them. And notice as well, they needed to keep coming back to Jesus to continually receive more from him as the source in order to be able to continuously supply what other people need. And as a result, it says the people received as much as they wanted. As I said, verse 12 says at the beginning that people were actually filled. The language there is glutted. It means fully satisfied, stuffed, completely satisfied. And again, the same spiritual reality of how Jesus works is true in our lives. We always need to remember that Jesus is the source of all things. 
Jesus is the supply, and because of that, whenever you serve the Lord, whenever I serve the Lord, let us give the glory where the glory is due. Any good thing that comes through me, any good thing that comes from you, let us remember the true source of that. Every good and perfect gift, the Bible says, comes from above. And let us give glory where glory is due from the real source, which is the Lord. And remember that we are only distributors of what Jesus gives and Jesus supplies. We're just the delivery people. Paul the Apostle understood this. He said, that which I receive from the Lord, I deliver unto you. It's good to remember that. It keeps humility in our service for the Lord, but it also allows us to take a lot of the pressure off because we realize, Lord, I don't need to produce it. All I need to do is receive from you what you produce and supply and just faithfully deliver it and just be a channel that if I step out to serve that you will let me receive and deliver what you have. Again, none of us could ever produce what people need. Only the power of the Lord can do that. And that's important to recognize because if we remember and operate in that way, people will, like in this story, then receive what they need. People will be filled or satisfied. One of the most important things to remember in your life, whether it's in Christian service or just trying to serve the people around you, none of us will ever be able to produce what people need. You and I can't produce what people need. You'll never satisfy the needs of everyone. You can't fix people. You can't solve their problems. Only Jesus can produce what people need. And our job is to keep going to Jesus and receiving from him and distributing what we can and trusting that he will ultimately have to be the one to continue to satisfy and to meet their needs. Look at verse 12. Our story continues saying, And when they had ate and were filled, he then said to his disciples, now they get another instruction, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. So Jesus gives an instruction here that demonstrates as well the value he puts upon good stewardship as they're done feeding everyone and serving the food jesus sends the 12 back out now to do an efficient job of cleaning up what still remained you see what he says there to him go out pick up the remaining leftovers so that nothing is lost that is that nothing is wasted that's an indication of stewardship there though jesus clearly provided let's be honest excess abundance And as well, though Jesus, we know, had the power miraculously to provide as much as they wanted whenever they needed it. That did not become reason or justification to take the excess for granted. Or to begin in some way to get sloppy and wasteful in how they handled what the Lord entrusted to them. Though Jesus had the power to miraculously provide whenever they needed, it was no reason to be wasteful with the resources they had on hand already. It was no excuse to become slothful or wasteful or sloppy and become poor stewards. Stewardship matters to our Lord. It matters to our Lord. The Bible says it's required that stewards must be found faithful. And we should remember in our current affairs that stewardship matters to the Lord. Let me ask you this morning, are you being a good steward with what the Lord has entrusted you with? Are you being a good steward with those things, what he supplied already? Are you appreciative of what Jesus has supplied for you? Whether it be a whole lot and you have excess beyond what you need, or whether it be a very little. Are you being a good steward with that, appreciating it, managing it well, or have you become sloppy and wasteful? 
Have you become, in a sense, irresponsible? Let, let's be very real. It takes a little extra effort and commitment to be a good steward. It takes a little extra effort to be a good steward with our time, to be a good steward with our resources, to be a good steward in all the areas of our life. It takes a little extra effort, but that matters to the Lord. And it's the way of the Lord. It's the way that he works. He blesses stewardship. He blesses those who exercise good stewardship. And in his work, certainly, again, when we serve and we do ministry works, however they may be, we need to remember that we should not be presumptive or wasteful, but always use what we have to the absolute best in a way that would honor the Lord. Verse 13 continues saying, Therefore they gathered up the leftovers and filled, look at this, take note, if you're awake, if you're asleep, wake up. They filled how many? Twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Here comes the air, so now you'll definitely wake up. Isn't it interesting? Look at verse 13 there. Notice how many they gathered baskets, 12 fragments or 12 baskets they were able to fill. How many disciples were serving? 12. Isn't it interesting the Holy Spirit notes that? I think it's a reminder to us how many disciples, there are 12, there's 12 baskets they gather. It shows us that the Lord always faithfully supplies for his servants. If you serve Jesus in any way with your life, I assure you, you will not lack. You will not lack. Oh, but if we serve the Lord, we're going to have to give up this. If we serve the Lord, what about that? If we serve the Lord, how will we get by? If we give to the Lord, how will we pay our bills? If we, Listen, if you serve Jesus and you put what you have into his hands, Jesus rewards his servants. He will give you time back. He will take care of your resources. He will give you the energy, the strength to do all the other things you need to. The Lord rewards his servants. Those who participate in his work and in his plans always are well taken care of by him. And consider how Jesus works and does his math. He even multiplies greatly for grace sake, if you would. Because notice, they take up 12 baskets full of fragments that are left. What do they start with? Not even one basket. They had five loaves and two small fish. But again, when, when you put what you have into the hands of the Lord and Jesus begins to take over and starts to bless, in the end, not only does he address often just what we need, but a lot of times afterwards, there's actually excess. That's that neat word called grace. Grace. And the Bible tells us that we serve a God of all grace and Jesus is good and gracious. And when you let Jesus take control of what you have, and let him start to work and say, Lord, not much, but here it is. Well, I'm putting it into your hands, Lord. And when you put what you have into the hands of the Lord, he will bless. And sometimes you will find, just like the disciples here, more often than not, that not only will you have what you need, but a lot of times you end up having more than you need. Because Jesus is gracious. And Jesus loves to bless. And here they end up with 12 baskets more than they first started with. Well, verse 14 concludes saying, Then those men... When they had seen this sign that Jesus did, said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. So that powerful experience led to the awareness that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was the deliverer. This miracle here, it signified to them that he was that prophet from Deuteronomy 18 that Moses had predicted. They said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. See, when challenging circumstances come into our lives 
a lot of times it provides this wonderful platform where then a powerful work of the Lord needs to be done, but one benefit of all those things is it reveals to us more about the greatness of our Lord. And we see things about Jesus that we never saw before, and people end up being astonished that Jesus can not only do what's necessary, but a lot of times he can do more than we ever imagined he could. And this is a wonderful benefit. Perhaps the Lord is intending to perform in your life a similar work in your current experience, to work in such a way to actually leave you overwhelmed. So that like the psalmist in Psalm 118, you would be able to say, as you see who Jesus is and what he can do, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In other words, that the Lord would have the platform to work where you on the other side would say, wow, look what the Lord has done. Look what he has done. Who would have imagined that this would happen? And why? Because Jesus is never limited. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray.